Are we on? Yay, all righty. All right, let's pray. I need that the most. Lord, we just thank you that we can be here. I thank you for that lovely worship, Lord, to just draw us into your presence. And I ask now that you would just fill this place with your Holy Spirit, each one of us, Lord, and help us to grasp and know and have engraved in our heart that which you have for us today, Lord, that we would be doers of your word and that we would go forth uh, just as we learned on Sunday from Pastor Jeff's beautiful message that we would be your ornaments, Lord God, reflecting you and, and uh, drawing the world to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, James chapter 4. Humility cures worldliness is what our study is called in our notebooks this week. And um, it's another test of living out our faith and putting our faith in action. And I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation this morning. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit of God is placed within us, yearns jealously, is filled with envy? But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, the word of God, not to judge whether it applies to you, because it does. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Look here, you, you who say, well, today or tomorrow we're going to go to a certain city and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. Well, how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own plans, and all such boasting is evil. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. All right, so we're starting off. <laughs> it's another... It's another one of those honey whackers. <laughs> anyway, we need to know this stuff. Striving and fighting, battles among family members and other Christians. What leads to all these fights? 
pride, greed. Most of the problems of man come basically from our greed and our pride. That pride, it breeds, it breeds envy, and loving the world breeds greed. You have not because you ask not. Well, what were they wanting and searching for? What are you searching for? They weren't searching for God, but for all the things that God gives. God gives joy, peace, happiness, meaning, value, hope, fulfillment. But they don't want God. They just want what they think will bring that, the stuff of the world. God is the giver of all good gifts. We read in James 1.17. Remember that? Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is the giver of all good gifts. So let's ask him. God wants to give you the true joy, the true peace, true happiness, true hope. That's what we're seeking anyway when we ask him for anything. That's what we think is going to be in that whatever we're asking for. But we need to ask God on God's terms. The word ask here in the original Greek It really means to beg humbly. It's the same word used in Acts 3-2 about that beggar seeking alms. And like the child, asking a parent in Matthew 7-9. And also in Ezra 8, a commoner, he comes before the king, and that same word is used. And there are many other places in scripture. So we need to come to God in humility and submission and dependence upon him. We ask amiss. And that word in the Greek means in an evil manner, motivated by our personal gratification and pleasure. The end of verse 2, you don't have because you do not ask. And I want to call your attention to how it went for a few other people in the Bible that didn't bother to ask God. In Jeremiah 10:21, For the shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Daniel 9.13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Hosea 7.7, all their kings have fallen, none among them call upon me. They all failed to ask God, and disaster was the result. In verse 3, it says, if we fail to receive and don't get because we ask for the wrong purpose. The word spend in the Greek is the very same word. I really got on the Greek this week because I was so inspired by Leanne last week (laughs) teaching us her Greek stuff. Anyways, I was looking up all those Greek words. Uh, Anyway, it's the same verb that's used in Luke 15, verse 14 of the prodigal son who spent everything on just riotous living and indulgence. The same word. Basically, James is explaining your lust is what's spoiling your prayers. And so that's why you're meeting with continual disappointments. If you're just going to use the resources God gives you without any thought to how they're being used, except for on yourself and for worldly things and sensual pleasures, and that is just to please your physical senses, that's what sensual means, Well, you know, God knows what's best for you, and it may be best to withhold some things from you. Why not ask God for what he wants for you? He loves you, and he knows what's best for you anyway. 
Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. He is going to put those good desires in your heart to ask for and correct you for asking amiss. If you sit with him humbly, pray and let him speak to your heart and spend time in his word and ask him, Lord, be the author of my prayer so that I am in harmony with what you want to do in my life. In 1 John 4, 14 to 15, it explains this pretty clearly for us. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And since we know that he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for, those petitions that we've desired for him. And that is one of my all-time favorite promises of God. It helps me to remember to check my motives and seek God's will in the matter. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth, says Psalm 145.18. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them, Mark 11:24. When I ask God to direct my path, do I believe that he will? When I ask God for wisdom, do I believe he'll give it? When I ask God for anything, do I believe it? He delights to do it for me. Do I trust him? Am I trusting him with doing and allowing those things in my life that are for the purpose of shaping me, leading me, guiding me, molding me into the image of his son, transforming me from glory to glory. Those are the things that he is going to do in my life. Those are the things that we should want him to do in our life. He is a good parent, so he is not going to give me things that are going to take me in a wrong direction. He says he will. So let's take God at his word. God means what he says, and he says what he means. And I say that pretty often because I find that year after year to just be more and more true. I just really get that. Being wishy-washy and double-minded and wavering in faith, it offends God. He says, is he God or isn't he? Hebrews 11.6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is God. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The Bible tells us not to store up treasure here on the earth. Store up treasure in heaven. That's where your treasure is. That's where your heart is going to be. And you could even switch that around. Where my heart is, that's what I want to invest in. I want to invest in the things of you, Lord, and not the things that are just to gratify my senses. You can't serve God and mammon. Matthew 6.24 says, mammon means riches. If God has given you resources, do you realize that they are really his resources? You are his resource. You are that love and those hugs that get poured out to others in a I-can-feel-it kind of way. And he's going to use all that he gives you uh, for his purposes, including for your own benefit and for the benefit of your family. So, have you been a good stewardship over them? Are you using what he's given you for his glory and his kingdom and to bless his people and others? Are you giving your best affections and resources to God or are those for the world and for your flesh? In verse 4, we have the word, uh, it's from the Greek called philia, a verb that we remember or can associate with phileo, often translated love in the New Testament. Philos means friend, and the word philia, 
friendship is used only in this one passage, but it's of the same word group. And it means to love in the sense of having an emotional attachment to or an affection for. It's not a casual attachment. It implies a deep and intimate longing to be involved with the world. It's a falling in love with the world, with all the drives and impulses driving it, desiring it. The goal of the world is, you probably, if you sat down for a moment and thought about it, self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction, self, self, self. And this is completely the opposite of God's will and God's character and God's love and God's desire for us. The world's perspective and the world's priority, me first, is completely incompatible with God. And that's why James says we are at enmity with God if we love the world and the way it sees and does things. And enmity means hostility, hatred. It can also be translated as enemy. You have that in your lesson this week to look that up. First John 2, 15 to 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For he that loves the world in his heart does not love or have the love of the Father. The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are of the world and are not of God. Lovers of the world are enemies of God. They hate God. And I want us to turn over in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. This also was in our lesson. And um, maybe you weren't able to get to this part. Maybe you were, but it's very good for us to really have this down. Romans 8, verses 5 to 8. I'm going to read this from the New King James. Verse 5. For they that are after the flesh, according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject, it's not submitted to obeying the law, the word of God, nor indeed can be. It doesn't want to be and it can't be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14, you don't have to turn there, I'll just summarize. But it says if we receive the Spirit, not of the world... But of God, the natural man, the unsaved, worldly person, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He doesn't get it. He can't know them. They're spiritually discerned. And I am here to tell you, I absolutely know this for myself, because I remember reading some passages in the Bible many years ago, and I did not have a personal relationship with Jesus. I did not know the Lord, and I didn't have the uh, understanding given from the Holy Spirit. And you may have relatives and friends you know like that. They read the Bible. Well, you know, it's I don't really get it. And I, you need to just keep coming to the Word of God with expectation. He has something there for you each and every day. Ask him, Lord, uh, this passage I'm on this particular day is a little bit of a toughie to me, but I want to understand it. And he will give you, he will bring to you understanding and how to apply it to your life. And it's layer upon layer. It's a foundation that builds on itself. And so day after year, uh, week after week, month after month, year after year, precept upon precept, 
The Lord will strengthen himself, his character within you. His Holy Spirit is giving you understanding and it's molding and shaping your character. And so that's why I continue to stand up here and say, read your Bibles. All right. Do you want to be an enemy of God? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I, I want to be a friend of God and I'm sure you do too. Well, who is a friend of God? James tells us back in chapter 2, we read a description of one of God's friends. That was Abraham. And you can uh, turn there if you want. I'll read it from the Amplified Version. It's just turning back a page to James 2.22. Abraham believed in, adhered to, trusted in, and relied on God. And this was accounted to him as righteousness, as conformity to God's will in thought and deed. And he was called God's friend. We are his friend if we love him, if we fear him. Fear meaning to reverence him, to obey him, and to respect and honor him for who he is. And that is Almighty God, creator of everything, creator of you. We, the church, are the bride of Christ. And I love what my sister Ruth said this morning. She was talking about this and um, just... I guess it just really hit her and and caused me to think about it, too, to be the bride of Christ. You know, to go after another love, a lover, is to be unfaithful to God. It's idolatry to flirt with the world and and have uh, just sort of half interest in, in the Lord or minimal or just not full interest in devotion to him. And it's getting sucked out and tied in other places. Think of how how that is. It is a disloyalty. It is an unfaithfulness. Verse 5, the spirit who God has caused to dwell in us, it yearns over us. God yearns for his spirit to be welcome with a jealous love. God doesn't want our divided, partial, lukewarm love. Verse 6, God gives us more grace. What is grace? It's God's favor given to sinners like you and me who are undeserving. What God offers is to give us more grace rather than condemnation to us who are believers who repent of our sins. And that is God gives us more and more grace, the power of the Holy Spirit to meet evil tendencies and and all others fully, those temptations. That's why God sets himself against the proud and the haughty but gives grace continually to the lowly those who are humble enough to receive it. Grace and pride are enemies. Pride demands that God bless me in light of my merits, whether they're real merits or imagined merits. And grace will not deal with me on the basis of anything in me, good or bad, but only on the basis of who God is. That grace only comes to the humble, Scripture says. Our humility doesn't earn the grace of God. The humility just merely puts us in a position to receive the gift he freely gives us, his grace. We know by now, we've read it, God hates pride. God is perfect. He's righteous. He's holy. He's love. He is all the antonyms of what pride is, the opposite of all this pride. Pride causes all the other sins. It causes the strife, the arguments, the contention, the greed, the covetousness, the hatred, the partiality, the cruelty, and all that is evil and contrary to God. And by pride comes nothing but contention, not only with man, our fellow men and family members, but also with God. 
And humility has always been a requirement for God's people. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? All right, James 4, 7, submit to God. One of the things I pray for myself pretty frequently now, not when I was first starting out, but I'm praying it a lot. Lord, help me to obey you completely and immediately. Spurgeon did an entire sermon just on this one verse here in James 4, 7. And one thing he said was, submission to our Lord and Savior will be manifested by ready obedience. That's that faith in action. It's going to be demonstrated out. Delays are essentially insubordinations, and neglects are a form of rebellion. Whoa, when I read that, did I get that? If I partially uh, obey or drag my foot and delay to obey God, it's rebellion against God. And it caused me to think and remember King Saul, who only oper- uh, partially obeyed God in 1 Samuel 15. The prophet Samuel told Saul, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than the offering of the fat of rams. Now, we're not going to go out here today and offer up a bunch of fat of rams. And I won't get into the whole way that Saul blew it, but he thought... God gave him very clear and direct instructions in what he was to do. And he did some, all right. But then he did some other things that he thought was better and actually not what God said to do at all. He, he kept part of the, um, the animals and the livestock, and he was not supposed to do that. And that's why Samuel's telling him, you know what, it would have been better to obey than to have all these goats and sheep and rams here to offer up the fat Paul, I mean, Saul put himself in a position to presume to know better than God. So Saul flunked the test. Saul was lifted up in pride, and he just thought, well, I, I think I've got a plan that's actually a little bit better. Well, you can go back and read that account of it another time, but I'll tell you, his outcome was not good because God lift him, left him. God resisted him, and that's because God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The second part of this verse, uh, 5-7, says resist the devil and he will flee from you. That word resist is from two Greek words, stand and against. It's a military term. There is warfare between your flesh and your spirit. And Satan is right there to encourage you to go after the world and your flesh. And God, who loves you, is encouraging you to go after the spirit, to be filled with his spirit. It's something we have to do continually, continually. And many times we don't really recognize it, that there is this spiritual battle going on and it's spiritual warfare. And maybe I just feel a heaviness or a depression. And maybe, in fact, it's really a satanic power and influence that's trying to oppress me and defeat me. And I'm feeling out of sorts. I'm feeling miserable. Years ago, I would have gone along like this for weeks, just depressed and, and, and struggling. And I've gotten much better and quicker at recognizing it. Not always instantaneously, but, you know, I'm sort of more tuned in to try to pay attention if that's what's going on. And I immediately turn to God and his word, and that oppressive spirit flees. I will 
start praising the Lord. I will start singing his praises. I will start meditating on his word. And there is a word there for you today. Don't sow to the flesh with those things that are going to pollute your mind and your spirit on the radio and the TV, the Internet. Don't sow to the flesh, Galatians 6, 7 says, because then if I sow to the flesh, I will reap the flesh, which is envying, striving, sedition, murder. Sow to the spirit. When the battle is raging, feed the spirit. And you've heard me give this example before, like two dogs fighting. Which one wins? The one that gets fed the most is the strongest. If you feed the flesh more, it's going to win. If you feed the spirit more, then the spirit of God will be greater in your life. It will win. You will win over that sin and temptation. Satan can be resisted by using the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We read it. We learn it. We know it. We hide it in our heart. You're here today. You're learning. You're meeting with your sisters. You're praying for one another. You're going through God's words. As David said in Psalm 119, so that I won't sin against you, Lord. Put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6 tells us, and stand against the wiles of the devil. What are his wiles? One of his main tricks is to persuade us to compromise just a tiny bit. And once you've accepted this ruse, it's a deception, the devil has his foot in the door. So don't have a casual and relaxed attitude about sin, James is telling us. We need to be really grieved over it. We don't want to compromise to the word of God. Resist the devil. He will flee. God declares and promises that to us. Flee from the temptation. It's not a mere assurance from a man, from James. It is a promise of God, God himself. He promises, 1 Corinthians 10:13. God is faithful to not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to resist, but with the temptation, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God's going to show you a way out so you can endure and not succumb to it. Now, the enemy will entice you and try to trap and ensnare you. But, you know, God, this was like a light bulb to me just recently. God is going to always make sure there's a way of escape. So I'm going to look around for it. Okay, Lord, it seems like it's pretty hard to overcome right now. But you said it's there. And sure enough, yes, go away from that temptation. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The longing of the heart of a true believer is for communion with the living God. I love how Jennifer, our sister Jennifer Conger said this this morning in our leaders meeting that, you know, when you love the Lord and his Holy Spirit is in you, it's, you want to do that. If we are far from God, he hasn't distanced himself from us. We have distanced ourselves from him and we've actually moved much closer to the world in our affections and our focus. Wash your hands. Those sinful practices is what they're talking about with your hands, your deeds. Get them off of you. You're dirty. Purify your hearts. That means your heart is to be devoted to God alone. Realize that you have been disloyal to God. Don't waver and be divided in your interests and loyalty. The double-minded is the person who tries to serve both God and the world. Romans 12:2. Don't be conformed to this world. All right, I'm going to, since I'm the teacher today, give you a little homework. When you get home today, spend some quiet time with the Lord, even if you have to go hide in the bathroom and 
<laughs> and, and your kids don't know you're in there, or go in the closet or your car, and just it doesn't take long. Ask him to search your heart and to show you if there is anything, any area, any person, any desire that is in the place where he should be. Is there anything you love more than him? And I'm telling you, I... When my son was young, he was so adorable, and he still is. I've often told him, oh, Mom only gave me one, but he gave me the best one, and, you know, and stuff like that. And he, he was just so precious to me. And sometimes I would cross the line, and I would be just a little bit more indulgent than was good for him and not consistent and setting boundaries and stuff. And the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you know, you're putting him in your heart above me. You will be a better parent to him if I am first. And you will raise him in a godly way if you put me first. And so every time I start to just get a little too too far, making an idol of my child, and I know as moms we can do that. We can do that with our pets. We can do that with our husband. We can do that with a wardrobe. We can do that with what's on TV. I mean, really, <laughs> we can do that with so many things. So... Lord, search my heart and show me, is there something there that is taking my time and I'm first thing I wake up, I can't wait to do that and I think about that and, I'm, and it's not you, the, you who are the love of my life? Think about this verse too that I'm going to read to you now when you bow your heart before God later when you get home. It's Isaiah 29.13. Isaiah 29.13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. It's just, well, it's a habit. It's a superstition. You know, I have family members. I know people, and they do this and they do that. And it's really almost more of superstition, like hanging the rabbit's foot in the, you know. And, and uh, But is it in their heart, or is it just some routine they've been taught? Their hearts are far from me. The God who created them and loves them is grieved because they have another lover. Now, the enemy of our soul, the devil, as I said, he seeks to entice us to find that fulfillment in the world. And it's a lie. He's lying to us and telling us that we can find all the contentment and joy and happiness that we desire if we will just turn from God's path and walk after our own desires of the flesh Satan's appeal is so strong. You know why? Because he appeals to that very thing that I'm interested in. And it may be different for each of us, but he, he observes us, and so he knows. He knows what that Achilles heel is for us. He knows if it's that sale here or that show here or if it's that, you know. Well, he just knows what it is. And he knows what I'm interested in and that desire of my flesh. And so, you know, he's going to... Try to lure me aside with that. So when we read in verses 7 to 10, here in James 4, Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep over your sin. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. What that is, what those verses are, is an invitation to stop being a friend of the world and become a friend of God. Isaiah 66, 2 says, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. Now, humble means broken, 
broken over your sin, sorrowful, repentant over your rebellion against God. It's a genuine sorrow over your sin, 2 Corinthians 7 tells us, that leads us to repentance. In verse 11 and 12, James is talking about the blasphemous sin of defaming others. The dictionary defines defamation of character, which is a term that we're pretty familiar with here in our society, as an attack on the reputation of someone by publishing false and malicious things that slander and injure. And it may take the form of misrepresentation, libel, or just plain gossip. Well, let's really get down into this. Don't, eat, don't speak evil about or say bad things against is really a better translation. Let me read that again. Don't speak evil about or say bad things against. Because slander in our English, it implies that the things that were said were untrue. But the Greek word here actually does not imply that. As far as um, what scripture says here, whether the things said are true or not, critical words divide and are not right for the Christian to practice. So that was an eye-opener for me. It isn't just if it's true or not. It's just any critical words. 1 Peter 2.1 says, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. In Exodus 23.1, you have the command of God against the sin. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking, the same term used here, be put away from you with all evil. God is talking about those sins that destroy personal relationships. He says they need to stop. In Matthew 15:19, our Lord Jesus associated slander with violent sins that proceed out of a grossly wicked heart. That is strong. That is clear. That is how grievous it is to God. In Proverbs 16:28 and 17:9, the scriptures say it utterly destroys friendships. And in Proverbs 18.8 and 26.22, it says, It leaves deep, scarring wounds in the soul of the one slandered. If we speak evil of someone, we're judging them. And God is the only judge, the only lawgiver. Scripture declares he's the only one qualified. We are not all-knowing as he is. We are not pure and holy and filled with all love at all times as he is. Only God knows what shoes another person has walked in and the condition of their heart. So we're better off leaving this area to the one who is the righteous judge, God our Father. And I'm reading a book right now. I love uh, Gisela Johannan. I got to hear her speak recently at a conference. And in her book, Dear Sister, she writes, We are to reflect God's nature more than anything else. Unity based on love, as described in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. And that's that love verse that says love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't seek its own way, and so on. That demonstrates the nature of God to a world that is torn into thousands of pieces by strife, wars, and hatred. All these directly result from men's and women's selfishness and pride. They're demanding and fighting for their own rights at the expense of others. End quote. So love one another. That's what God's commandment is, that you love one another as I have loved you. And God doesn't mince his words. He says what he means clearly and directly to us. All right, let's wrap it up in verse 13. Now we've got some businessmen. They're making some plans. 
today or tomorrow, we'll go into town, spend a year, we'll set up a business and buy and sell and make some good money here. Now, the issue here is not in what is said. The issue here is in what is not said. Careful planning is essential and careful planning is expected. We're supposed to be good stewards. And nothing that is said there reveals the problem. It's what's not said that reveals the problem because there's no mention of God. There's no thought for God. This is living your life as if there was no God at all. And it's the foolishness of ignoring the will of God, planning your life as if God didn't exist at all, even though you may believe that he does. This is the man or woman who runs their own life. God's not on the throne. They put themselves on the throne. Their agenda doesn't include God. There's no place for God in the planning. They've chosen their own time, their own location, their own operation. It's been said, man proposes, but God disposes. Proverbs 19.21 says, there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. And in the New Living Translation, I like it. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Now, how many times have we prayed and told God what we're going to do and then ask him to bless it and not even bothering to find out if it's even his will for us? And I want you also to notice here that uh, they're claiming an ability to control life, which they do not have. They're boasters. Uh, That's what scripture's calling them. And... They're speaking as if life and action and that particular kind of action, like all those things are in their power. And actually, you think about it, all three depend entirely on the will of God. There is a will of God for every dimension of our lives. Our heads, we get real full of visions that we want to do and plans and something we're going to do in the future that we're going to enjoy. And you know what? We don't know what the future holds except that for our eternity we will be with him tomorrow on this earth is promised to no man we don't hold the future we don't know the future our times are not in our own hands but at the disposal of god we live as long as god appoints and in the circumstances that god appoints so don't you want to sit down first and ask the very one who does know the future and in fact holds the future your future That's wisdom. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. And if you don't have Proverbs 3, 6, uh, memorize, commit it to memory, and underline that word, shall, shall. That's a guarantee. God will direct your path. He delights to help you, to show you the way to go. So James is rebuking this kind of heart that lives and makes plans apart from a constant awareness of the sovereignty of God And actually with an underestimation of our own limitations. Now, you have to understand, James is not discouraging us from planning and doing, only from planning and doing apart from reliance on God. Verse 14, he reminds us how brief our time here on earth is. And we've got a lot of reminders to this fact in scripture. Just as the cloud is consumed and vanishes away, says in Job 7 verse 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They're flying by, also in Job. And 8, 9, our days upon this earth are a shadow, so brief. We had a funny one this morning, but I'm... (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) we had a funny one about how brief and what kind of a vapor that was. 
So James admonishes them and us when he says, we ought to say, if the Lord wills. And quite honestly, it is a fool who doesn't seek God. It's foolish to plan without seeking the Lord first. He loves you. His plan is better for you than your own anyway in the bigger eternal picture. Even little things in life are not overlooked by his all-seeing eye. The very hairs on your head are numbered. He, the whole course of the universe lies before him like an open map. He made the map. He made the universe. And only God knows the end from the beginning. He's already, he already knew about us before we were born and when we were in our mother's womb. He knew us and he knows the plans that he has for us. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give us a future and a hope. Hello, Lord, I'm going to trust you with my plans. I'm going to believe you. I'm going to take you at your word. You've been so faithful. You've proven yourself. <laughs> Why do I keep doubting you and taking back the reins and trying to run the show myself? Verse 16, it says, they're boasting in their arrogance. Proverbs 21 says, don't boast about tomorrow. You do not know what a day may bring forth. All such boasting is evil, James warns us here. And verse 17, so any person who knows what is right to do but does not do it, to him it is sin. It's wrong. They've omitted, they've left out, left off doing what they should have done. That person making the plans in verse 13, they knew what to do. Why not consult God and ask him what ought to be done with the money and the time and the energy in in our life? But they failed to do it, and they want to call the shots themselves. It's the sin of omission. It's the failure to do what you ought to do. So do we get that? To know and not obey is wrong. Pray and ask the Lord what Colossians 1.9 says, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then in Colossians 4.12, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. And I often pray that for our pastor here and for our church board here. I pray it for myself. I pray it for my son. I pray it for whoever I can get my hands on in my prayer, in my mind. You know, Lord, help them. Why? Because if you read further in verse 10 of Colossians chapter 1, and these are precious verses. I hope that you will mark them. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. And you know what? The better and better you get to know the Lord, the more you grasp his love for you, that perfect love that casts out all fear. When you grasp how much the Lord loves you and he has a good plan for you, even over the hard, bumpy road and the steep part that's hard to climb, that fear is going to fade away. Lord, I can trust whatever you allow in my life. It seems awfully hard. It's overwhelming to me. I, I don't know what the outcome's going to be, but I know you. I know your character. I know how much you love me. The desire to do the will of God is the mark, the action of the transformed, the transformed life in Christ Jesus. And I'm... <laughs> I'm emotional right now because I know that some of the hard things that there are ladies in here sitting here dealing with, and my heart is full of concern for them. But then I remember. I remember who their Lord is. 
I remember how much he loves them. And, uh, and I can rejoice that he's not going to waste it. That their lives, as hard as their situation is, has a purpose. And he is going to work it for good. They can't see it. It might be too hard to see because it's a hard thing. It's a painful thing. It's a scary thing. But he's good. And he means what he says. And he says what he means. All right, let's pray. Lord, Lord, forgive us for our wanderings into the world. Forgive us for being entertained by its allurements. Forgive us for our flirting with its lust. Lord, please make us clean and set our affections on things above, on you, not on things on the earth. Help us to love you more than we have, more than any other thing or person or pastime. And Lord, I do ask for each one listening now that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And help us, Lord, to remember to always seek you and your will and whatever plans are running through our minds. And Lord, our minds are running. You love us. You promise to direct our path. And we want you to. And thank you that we can trust wherever you lead us. Thank you, Lord, that you are not going to forsake us. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us through this hard time, through this hard thing, Lord. We praise you. We thank you. I pray that you would bless the ladies now as they go forth from here with a closer and deeper knowledge of you, Lord. Just an intimate relationship with you lord you're everything that they need and you're all that they desire and want even if they can't clearly see it now lord everything everything that we need is found in you and i pray these things in jesus name amen